Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Randall Church. We're so glad you're here. We're going to be in Acts 2, 42-47. In fact, we'll be using that passage for these uh, three weeks of our series on the why, and we'll be looking at different aspects of that. So if you have your Bible, flip over to Acts chapter 2. I'd invite you uh, one last time to stand if you would. Uh, One thing that we do is we uh, stand when we read the passage, uh, just a way to commit ourselves to the Lord as a way to recognize uh, his words versus ours. And also we say a prayer uh, called the Shema. It's a Hebrew prayer that helps us uh, commit ourselves back to God before we approach the test. So say it with me uh, this morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. This is Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Two Mondays ago, a group of us from the church went over to Aaron and Rebecca Richbarts uh, to help them move from their Cheektowaga home to their new place in Clarence. So the Sunday before was their last night in the old home. And I remember I, I, I was asking Rebecca, and I said, Rebecca, how are you feeling about this? And all she said to me was, we're not talking about it. We're not talking about it. Right? It's a very emotional time when you move. When you move, we were very emotional when we moved from our place in Rochester to come here. One of Molly's lasting memories is standing in our backyard for the last time, absolutely weeping. Which on the surface for us seems funny because we hated that backyard. We lived in a village uh, where three sides of that backyard was uh, surrounded by busy roads and it was not fenced in. And so we had busy children that liked to roam. There was no privacy and no rest for parents trying to keep their children alive. We were so looking forward to come to this place that had a fenced-in yard, and we could just let our children roam freely. And so we did not like that backyard at all. But there Molly was, crying and audibly saying out loud, I hate you, backyard, I hate you! You see, there's something about the backyard, right? We know there's something deeper than just what's going on in the space. When Rebecca blinks back tears, when Molly cries over her hated backyard, when you've been emotional leaving a place, it's not because typically of the actual home. In fact, most of the time, or a lot of the time, the very reason you're moving is because the actual home doesn't work for you anymore. You're emotional because of those who lived in the home. You're emotional because of the memories you made while inside. You're not emotional about the brick and mortar. You didn't fall in love with the drywall. You're stirred by the loved ones who lived there and the memories you made while there. Because we we understand this principle that home is not a place 
It's a people. Home is not a place. It's a people. You've heard the expression, you move into a house and then you make it a home. And you don't make it a home by fixing something up or renovating it. You make it a home by the people you surround yourself with in the home. Home is not a place. It's a people. We hear people say, I want to find a church home. They'll use that word. And again, what they're not saying is, I want to find the right building. No one brings their measuring tape on a Sunday morning to see how far the studs are from each other. Except maybe Al Maurer. He might do that. But other than that, we come seeking belonging. We're looking for a home, a place where we're known a place where we can be embraced, a place where we can give as well as receive. And every year about this time, we remind ourselves about the DNA of the church. We believe that every faithful church has these three driving elements. And here at Randall, we use the words upward, inward, and outward to communicate them. These three components are the unshakable core of any church. And we believe that every year we need to be reminded again and again of why we do what we do. And so last week, Milo took us through the upward. Why a relationship, an upward relationship with Christ is the central foundational thing we do here at this church is we help you find your place upward in Christ which then enables us to then begin finding our place inward here at the church. We must find our place inward here. And the passage we read a few minutes ago is considered the gold standard for the church. This passage has been studied and dissected and analyzed, looking for the magic bullet, the secret sauce on how to be the perfect community. And we know that's an impossible task this side of eternity. There is no easy button to community, but we do find in the passage some elements, some pictures, some little glimpses into how we can be better at this. So I want to offer a few things this morning as we look at this passage. And again, each week of these three weeks, we'll look at this passage anew. Say, where are we finding upward, that upward core here in this passage? Where are we finding this inward core in this passage. And finally, next week, where do we see it go out from here? And through it all, we'll be reminded again and again, home is not a place. It's a people. It's not a place. It's a people. So as we look in, first, first thing we find is that they were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to the fellowship. Notice that it doesn't say that they were devoted to the act of fellowshipping. This word is a noun. They were devoted to the fellowship, to a group of people. Now, the word devoted in the original language is written with this continuous aspect. So you could very easily say, and some translations do, you could say, they were continuously devoting themselves. Continuously devoting themselves to the friendship. Because we know it's not easy. It takes time. And sometimes you have to choose to commit yourself to someone or to a group of people, even when you don't feel it. It's, it's not an act that you do and then it stops. You choose every day to recommit to the fellowship. So they're continuously doing this. And now the word fellowship is the word koinonia. And this word actually had some history in the Greek. It's interesting that Luke decides to use this word. 
Because in the Greek and Hellenistic world, this had history. Koinonia was a term that most often was used to describe the unbroken fellowship between gods and men. The Greek temples would actually use this word. They'd say, how is your koinonia? And they'd be referring to how your, your stances, your places with the gods of the temple. And so Luke, along with other writers, commandeer this word and take it and use it in a different way and flip it on its head to say that, no, no, koinonia is not, is not the God. Koinonia is that bond between people who are committed to God. And so if you were a reader in the first century and you read this letter, the word koinonia would jump out to you as, as really peculiar but intentional. It expressed the idea that we are devoting ourselves to the, the, the fellowship and it is somehow connected to our devotion to God. It's not separated. A, a reader would have read that and been like, huh, they used the word koinonia, but that, that usually means what we do in the temple. And, and now you're saying you're actually devoting yourselves to this koinonia with a group of you as you are loving and serving and honoring and worshiping God. And they would have seen that connection and been like, that, oh, so when I commit myself to a group, to a fellowship, it is somehow connected to how I'm committing myself to God himself. So this isn't some flippant, casual connection to others. Devoting myself to a community of Christians has deep implications for my relationship with God. A few years ago, I was sitting in a coffee shop and I overheard one of the baristas tell a coworker about church. And whenever I'm in one of these things and I overhear, you know, the eavesdropping you do at a coffee shop, we all do it. Come on, we know, right? So you're sitting there and you overhear and every once in a while I overhear some sort of church-related or Christian-related conversation and my ears perk up and I lean a little closer in and I just, you know, have a, have a nice listen. And I heard this barista tell a coworker about his current church experience. And what he said was something to the effect of, well, I go between this church and that church, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a good, it's a good mixture for me. And I remember being struck by that, because for him, church is something that offers you goods and services, preaching, music, a place to get married, a social outlet, a group for moms, an opportunity to give or to serve, name your pick. And then you choose from, from one or, the, or many of those things, and after a while you jump between communities, or you just simply leave one community who's not doing it well so that you can get it somewhere else down the road. Eugene Peterson, who is a pastor and an author, he says the same thing, but with a little bit more punch to it. He says this, and he's addressing pastors. He says, pastors have changed into a company of shopkeepers, and the shops they keep are churches. They are preoccupied with shopkeepers' concerns, how to keep the customers happy, how to lure customers away from the competition down the street, how to package the goods so that the customers will lay out more money. Some of them are very good shopkeepers. They attract a lot of customers, pull in great sums of money, develop splendid reputations. Yet it is still shopkeeping, religious shopkeeping to be sure, but shopkeeping all the same. You see, when the New Testament talks about the church, it doesn't use images like shopkeeper and customer. It uses images like family, body, and nation. 
things that are not easily separated. So are we committing to the fellowship here? Are we at Randall coming each week and saying, I've devoted myself to a group of people and so I'm here? Because the identity of the local church is a group of people who've given themselves to each other for a common purpose. Is there preaching involved? Absolutely. Is there music? You bet. Is there community? I sure hope so. But they are not individual goods that people can pick and choose from like a Chinese buffet. And this can be hard because when we talk about church in view of image, or an image of family or nation or body, this can be hard because we know this is difficult. Again, they are continuously devoting themselves to it. They have to keep choosing, keep doing it. It can be hard just like any family. When you think about it, every family has crazy Uncle Hector and smelly Aunt Susan right? You know every family has that. You go to a birthday party, you go to a family reunion, and you know who that person is. You're smiling because you know who that is. Just the, the, the oddball of the family. Some of you are looking at each other. You're trying to decide. And we see them at birthdays, and we have to endure weird conversations with them, but they're family. And we're devoted to our family. Every church has crazy Uncle Hectors and smelly Aunt Susans. And at Randall, we have many. That's what makes us special. But we're family. And we're committed to our family. And we don't see this place as a Chinese buffet. We don't see this place as a place where we pick the few things we like here, but then go down the road to the other place that we like down there. As the early church said, they were committed, they were devoted to the fellowship, a family, a people, a body that are doing life together. For some of you, you're simply connected to the brick and mortar here. You've committed to the drywall. And there's so much more. Because home is not a place, it's a people. It's a people. There's so much more than the one hour and 15 minutes we spend together on a Sunday morning. Number two, we see what other things are we seeing going on there. So first we see that they're committed. They're all in with each other. And I think this is really starts everything, is that you have to be committed. You have to say, I'm all in, I'm committing to this people and not these programs. I'm committing to these, this, these group, a collection of community, and not just simply the things that this church offers. But once we've committed, once we have the mindset, what are some other things that they did? Well, we see number two is that they met together. They were meeting together, and they were breaking bread. They were meeting together, and they were breaking bread. Apparently, when you devote yourself to someone, you actually need to be from time to time. Now, for a church, this only becomes harder as transportation and technology get better and better. I calculated this week, and a 10-minute drive from my house, I can be at over two dozen churches. A 10-minute drive, and I can be at over two dozen churches. And this really hurts uh, our, our concept and just our very nature, the technological determinism of our, of our time, it actually changes our mindset to want to not commit because we have so many other options. 
We have options. I have, we have hundreds of, of, of channels on our TV. We have hundreds of options. We have a, I have an iPhone in my pocket right now that, has, that could have thousands of songs put on it if, if, if I wanted to. I don't own that many songs. But if I did, I, they could go on there. You could have endless options, and it begins to change our commitment level. It begins to change our idea of how we meet together and gather for things like that. And heck, if I just don't want to come to church, if I just don't want to show up, I can just watch church in my pajamas on a screen. And there are countless churches that will offer you that. And you can sit and chat with them while you watch the church service from a screen. In a lot of ways, I think we've lost the value, the meaning of meeting. We've lost the meaning of meeting. Now, in the Jewish world, they have preserved this value of proximity. Because in the, in the commandments, in the Old Testament, it commanded that on the Sabbath, on the day that you are to go and worship, that you couldn't leave your homes. Which seems problematic for meeting, right? That, okay, well, the Lord said, and it says this, Exodus 16, 29, says this, everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. Now, of course, the rabbis got together and said, well, how do we get together to meet if we can't leave our homes? And so they began to wrestle and figure out what to do. And so they basically determined that a 2,000 cubit radius around your home. And they said, it is not considered leaving your home if you stay within 2,000 cubits of the home, which equates to about half a mile. So basically, you have half a mile radius from your house that you can go and you're still considered home. And what this did, strangely, is that, so therefore, when you, if you wanted to go to a synagogue, if you wanted to worship with a community which was also commanded, you had to live within half a mile of the synagogue you lived in because you couldn't go beyond that. And what this did was it actually created this really beautiful community because everyone who went to the church lived within walking distance of one another. We actually have a synagogue where we live uh, a little north here in Amherst that is within 2,000 cubits of a synagogue. And so we have a ton of Jewish people that live in our community. I have Jewish Kevin Lamb that lives on my block. She's the, she's the UB director of Jewish life. And so I was like, hey, you're... She didn't understand the joke, I said. Uh, and she just looked at me funny. I was like, you're Jewish Kevin Lamb. And she was like, no, I don't know what that means. It was embarrassing. We have a ton of Jews, and on Saturdays, we watch them walk. And they walk there up to half a mile to get to synagogue. But they form this really tight community within our subdivision of a people doing life together. It's actually really cool. Now, here at Randall, if we were to hold to that, half a mile roughly, if you, if you think about it, to our south here, half a mile is just beyond the YMCA, if you go to the, what is it, what is this, the east or the west? West. If you go to the west, it's just the, basically the, the school limit of Williamsville South. If you go to the north, it's uh, just about like at the country club, like the, 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 the country club, the golf course that's here. And if you go here, the, the, there's a park about half a mile down. That's as far as you could go. If you wanted to come to this church, you had to live in that circle. Now, of course, we think this is a little bit limiting, but here at Randall, we do value proximity. 
We value the ability to meet together, to be close to one another, to be able to go over to someone's house quickly, to run into each other at the supermarket. And that's the whole idea behind our care corridors. So about two years ago, we began organizing ourselves in geographically-based corridors all around the region to provide care for those in the church and the greater community. Now, each corridor has one to two elders who oversee spiritual needs and a collection of deacon and deaconesses that focus on physical needs. And everyone in the corridor is responsible for caring for each other who live there. It's actually very freeing to know that I've got a group of people in a certain zone that that they're my people. They're the ones that when they're sick, when there's something going on, when they need a meal, we jump on it and we go for it. There's something cool about an elder who is responsible for me. Stephen Waldvogel is responsible for my soul. And there's actually something really freeing about that, that there are people looking after me and looking out for me. And if we had a problem, we did it. When Molly and I lived in Boston, we, we came to this realization. We moved up there. We didn't know a soul. We went to school there, got jobs. And we came to this realization about a year in. We were driving home from, from somewhere, and we realized if our car broke down right now, we do not have anyone we could call. Like, we were like, we should probably get AAA. (laughs) And it was a very empty feeling to be like, I cannot think of one person. Maybe one, but they live, our church, we lived kind of near the campus, and so our church was far away. And we said, I don't think there's anyone we could call right now if we were broken down on the side of the road. My prayer is that there's not one person in this church that would be able to say that. My prayer is that through these care quarters or just the friendships you make here, that if you broke down on the side of the road, and we did recently on Main Street here uh, at the Bank of America, and instantly we had a phone full of of people that we could call. And my prayer is, is that that will be your situation too that you would have people in your phones, that you would have a whole network, a care corridor of people that would rally around you in need. And furthermore, the text says that they broke bread together too. They didn't just simply meet together, but they broke bread together. And eating together in those days wasn't just about eating. It was a public symbolic act of associating yourself with someone. It was actually very, it had a high cultural and societal message to it when you ate with someone. You were actually forming a relational covenant with the ones that you ate with. So we see in scripture, Abraham and Melchizedek ate a meal together. We see that Moses and God actually, when he goes up uh, onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, he actually shares a meal with God. I wonder what that dinner conversation was like. Jesus shares meals. And this is why the Pharisees are so upset with Jesus when he eats with sinners and tax collectors. How could you associate yourself with them? And then Jesus invites his disciples to a meal. The Last Supper. And while there, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, communion is a symbol, a symbolic picture of our commitment to koinonia, our commitment to God and to one another. We're eating a meal together. 
It is called communion intentionally. It is a communal experience. It is not simply hundreds of individual acts happening at the same time between you and Christ. It is a community act of establishing and reestablishing our covenant between ourselves as a people and to God. And to be devoted to the fellowship is the value and meaning of meeting together. So your presence here is not just about you. We need everyone here in order to do this work. It's not just about you and a personal experience here at church. Milo talked about this last week, that when we sing together, we need everybody singing. I don't know, there was something about last week on that very last song that stirred me. It was like you guys kicked it up a notch. And, and, the, and the sound was powerful of a group of people singing together. You can't get that on online church. You can't get that really anywhere. When you think about it, when in, if you grew up in the church, it's like normal to you, but for most people, how many experiences do you ever have of singing communally together with people? I mean, I grew up with it, so it's like commonplace for me. I remember talking to one of my neighbors once. It's like, you guys sing together? I was like, well, yeah, we, we, we sing together. Like, what's that like? You know, maybe at the ballpark, a birthday party, or a concert venue, would you ever sing together? There's something really valuable about that. And what that means is it requires you to be here. It requires you to actually be present, to meet together. Now, does this mean we can't go on vacation? Of course not. And does this mean we we should come even though we're sick? Please don't. But it does mean that if your first reaction when you're tired, when your kid has a sports practice, or when you just don't feel like it, is to bail on the meeting, if that's your first reaction, then I think it's time to reevaluate some things. Because we need you here. There is a intimacy and a, a, a power in meeting and being together. So let's not stop meeting together. We need you. Don't check out. Don't come only when you feel like it. And I'd say find someone from the church. Find someone new from the church and invite them over to dinner. Again, there's something powerful about having someone over for dinner. The other night, uh, Bonnie and Tom Kaminsky had us over for dinner the other night. And there's something that happens when you have a meal together. Mia swam in their pool. Michael stole things out of their garage. We really bonded together. Because <laughs> there's something when you sit down, right? There's something when you sit down at the table together. So maybe perhaps today, look around. Who's someone new? Who's someone you don't know? Who's someone that, that seems maybe on the outs? And have them over for dinner. And again, we know this is hard. And does that mean we, we, you need perfect attendance? No. But are you committed to meeting together? Are you committed to the fellowship? Because home is not a place, it's a people. Finally, we see this. We see that they have things in common. They share a common life together. They share a common life together. It reads this, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. As we were leaving the Kaminsky's that night, 
uh, they said to us, hey, uh, we've got this pool. Whenever you want it, come on over. You know, if it's hot, we don't even need to be here. Just come on over, jump in the pool. And what's going on there is that they're making their pool our pool, right? In some way, they're saying that this is now your property as much as ours. Now, does that mean we're going to come over like at 1 a.m. making a lot of noise? and No, of course, we respect each other's uh, privacy and we respect each other's boundaries. But there, in a sense, there's something about that that says, come on over. We'll share what we have in common. Now, like the word koinonia, Luke is actually using an already known concept of that day to make a point. Because this concept of common property had a history too. The folklore of the day was that the ancient city of Athens was the idealistic utopia from which all Greek society was driven. And so Plato writes in some of his writings, he writes this, neither had any of them anything of their own, but regarded all that they had as common property. It's almost as if Luke is is taking a page right out of Plato here as he writes. And so the people of that day would have understood, this is not a new concept to them. The problem is, is that Plato, among others, actually tried to realize it, and it failed. Every time they attempted to do this, it didn't work, and and selfishness came in, and greed came in, and pride came in, and, and over and over they attempted to do this, and they failed until they got to the point, they kind of looked it over, and concluded that this ideal was lost forever in its pure form, that you just, you couldn't do it. It's a nice idea, it's a nice thought, but not practical in reality. And so when Luke, a Greek, begins describing a group of people sharing possessions, the reader would have gotten the impression that this Greek ideal of society was actually breaking into the present. It didn't have to remain in the past. Now, does this mean that I can come up to you, as as we understand this for our day, does this mean that I can come up to you and demand your car keys after the service? I would say depending on what kind of car you drive. Does this mean that you need to open up your home at all times and for all people at every waking hour? No. Because the problem is is that oftentimes people will end chapter 2 and not continue reading to chapter 4. Because in chapter 4, it actually begins to describe how that works. They set up the ideal in Acts 2. They kind of show you kind of the ideal of what this looks like. But then the rest of Acts, they're actually playing that out. They're actually teasing that out and tangibilizing it and saying, here's, where, here's what it actually looks like. And so in Luke 4, we actually get a, a glimpse into what this looked like in real life, how they made this happen. And so it says this in, in, in Acts chapter 4. It said, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that there was, that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had a need. So we're actually now getting, getting a, a description of what that actually looked like. We were given the ideal in two, but now we're actually, how does this play out? How, are people just, is this just like a hippie commune and everyone's just kind of, hey man, don't worry about it. And we're just, everyone gets to share everything. No, there was actually a system in place. People moved by the Holy Spirit voluntarily gave out of their abundance to a centralized place where the funds could be distributed safely and wisely. It wasn't a free-for-all. 
And we do that here at Randall by way of our care fund. On the first Sunday of every month, we take a collection specifically for those in need in our community. Out of the abundance of what God has given us, we actually give back above and beyond what's required. Because we recognize that this is a holistic way of devoting ourselves to a fellowship. We don't just connect with them on a social level. We connect with them on a physical level too. And so we want to know where there's needs and how we can help. Because home is not a place. It's a people. It's a people. Let's uh, call the band up as we conclude. So we see this. We see these three elements. We see a firm commitment to the fellowship, to the inward nature of the church. We see that everyone is meeting together. They're breaking bread together. They're actually spending time together. And finally, we see that they have this common life together. They're sharing uh, resources. They're making sure people aren't in need. They're making sure that people aren't stuck. And we begin to get this picture of what it looks like to live in community with one another. But in the end, we know that what we are doing here is but a shadow of the home that is to come. We are simply trying to display to the best of our ability the home that is waiting for us, the home that Jesus is preparing when we'll all be together. Jesus says this in John 14, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me there, that you also may be where I am. My Father will love you, and we will come to you and make our home with you. You see, we are creating here a picture of what it will be like someday. We're creating here, we're displaying, and next week we'll talk about this, we're displaying for the world what it looks like when Jesus is present. When we lay down our pride, when we lay down our our, uh, insecurities, when we lay down everything that keeps us from truly knowing one another, and we begin to live the best life possible. And so we know that it's not, we know that it's hard and we know that it's not perfect. And if you haven't found your place inward here at the church, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I've been here a long time, I still don't feel that. Please fill out a connection card and let us know. We would love, love the opportunity to help you find your place here. Because home is not a place, it's a people.